0: Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. It's been a busy year for the class struggle 2019, so while those of us here at Socialism and many of you out there at home are enjoying the Christmas break, here's a rerun of episode 34, which first aired on the 9th of August 2019. Boris, Brexit and British Capitalism, From when Boris Johnson first became leader of the Tory party, we examined the extreme contradictions and inherent crises which he would face as the leader of a failing capitalist system and a dysfunctional party representing it. Those contradictions, those inherent crises still apply, and the busy year for class struggle which we had in 2019 will be as nothing to the explosions which we could see in 2020. So, here's Clive Heemskirk from the Socialist Party's Executive Committee, reminding us of the problems that Boris Johnson is going to have still, in episode 34, Boris, Brexit and British Capitalism.
1: Hello, and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. Unpredictable, volatile and unstable. Three words which sum up the situation facing new Tory Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. This right-wing populist is quick to make promises, but he's presiding over the same slow-motion car crash of British capitalism and the Conservative Party that destroyed Theresa May. With a snap election ever more inevitable, this episode we ask, what are the prospects for the new PM and for capitalism in Britain?
0: Thanks for that, James Ivans here from the Socialist Newspaper Editors Department. In a development that has surprised no one, Boris Johnson has won the Tory leadership race and is now Prime Minister. He's immediately made a series of populist announcements promising money here and there to try to distance himself from the dead duck premiership of Theresa May. But in Brexit he's facing the exact same establishment impasse and must make the exit process and his domestic policies pay for big business and the super rich. This episode we'll be asking Clive Heemskirk from the Socialist Party's Executive Committee what lies ahead for Boris, Brexit and British capitalism. Hello Clive. Hello James. So just 92,153 people voted for Johnson to move into number 10. That's smaller than the membership of England's Netball Association. How did this happen? Well that 92,000
2: figure is the number of Tory party members who voted for Johnson with Forty six thousand voting for Jeremy Hunting mm-hmm. rival candidate. But that total figure actually shows the completely shallow social base that the Tory party now has. It's just the oldest capitalist party in the world. Mm-hmm. In fact, the oldest party in the world. The vast majority of the capitalist class in Britain wanted to remain in the EU mm-hmm. after all, it's a bosses club that's implementing Thatcherism on a continental scale. And after the referendum, they would hoped they could reverse the results, if not by a second referendum, as has been done in Ireland and Denmark in the past, at least by getting the best possible Brexit in name only deal. But the problem is they don't have a reliable political instrument to achieve that. Mm-hmm. We are facing, in other words, a crisis of capitalist political representation, and that's shown itself in the election of a maverick figure like Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. Now, the Tories are profoundly split. They are a capitalist party, but like all capitalist politicians defending a system that's based on the exploitation of the majority by a small minority, they have to find a way to rule. Mm -hmm. They can't rule in such an open fashion. They can't say we're the party of the 1%, even though they are a party of the 0.2%, but that's another issue. So they have to try and divide the working class, which they do by ideological means. That includes religious division, sexism, and, of course, nationalism and its most extreme variant, racism. But the problem is that the Tory party, too, has been transformed since the the end of class politics, the triumph of the free market over socialism with the collapse of Stalinism, which, of course, wasn't socialism for us, but it was seen as an alternative to capitalism over 30 years ago. And the Tory party has fallen in membership, had a mass membership of over 2 million in the 1950s, to a membership of one hundred sixty thousand today, whose main financial contributions is well known. Last year was to actually die rather than pay their membership subs. <laughs> you know, in, in terms that's how they how they raise more money that way than from the actual members. And by the way, talk about the Netball Association. Well, one hundred sixty thousand members, which is the total claimed membership, is actually less than the quarter of a million companies. The two hundred forty thousand companies that export to the EU, for example, Mm. and they're not all owned by one individual. (laughs) Not even the owners of those companies are in the Tory party at this stage. And it's become a, a narrow, dysfunctional sect for the capitalists. It's still, of course, committed to capitalism, but the main ideological glue that holds together the party members, it gives them the ideological motivation to get up on a wet Sunday and go leaf it in and so on. Is above all the nationalism, the idea of Britain's glorious past and so on. Mm-hmm. And when they were presented with Jeremy Hunt or Boris Johnson, it was obvious who they were going to choose, mm-hmm. and Johnson over Remain supporter in the twenty sixteen referendum.
0: Now you've spoken a little bit about this already, but it's clear that Johnson has a different political style to perhaps traditional Tory leaders. He presents himself, as you said, as a maverick and alongside the expected tax cuts for the very rich. He's promised more money for elderly care and policing. He's also promised so-called free ports, tax-free import areas, which he claims will create jobs. Why is he doing all of these things, or at least promising them?
2: Well, that fits in with the point that I've just made. I and mean, mm-hmm. actually, Bernard and Bevan put it in a different way. was one of the leaders of the left, the Labour Party in the Attlee government in the 1950s. And he describes the task of the Tory party in the age of universal suffrage... Posed the question, how can wealth persuade poverty to use its political freedom to keep wealth in power? Mm. Here lies the whole art of conservative policies in the 20th century, <laughs> in, the, in the period of universal suffrage. So the fact that we're seeing a slow motion implosion of the Tory party is a symptom of a more profound crisis of capitalism, certainly compared to the post-war boom, which gave a material underpinning to the base the Tory party then had, you have the prospect of increasing living standards, the idea that the next generation would have a better life than the present generation and so mm-hmm. on. That's been completely blown apart since the end of the post-war boom in the 70s, but in particular, the inauguration of the age of austerity mm-hmm. in the financial crisis, 2007-2008. Mm-hmm. And the Tory party has not been able to overcome that. The Catholics haven't really been able to overcome that, both economically and politically, the continuing consequences of the crisis of 2007-2008, economically, as we all know, in terms of the persistence of stagnating living standards, mm-hmm. politically, it, in the fact that Leave Votes itself was a product of the age of austerity, two fingers to the establishment in reality, mm-hmm. and therefore the Tory party, or a Tory leader, has to find another way, and Johnson is doing, doing that in populist policies. There is an issue, which we haven't got time to discuss here, but how... His populist approach can be answered. That's another question to address. For sure. example, his pledges on elderly care or pledges to increase education spending. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, that puts the onus, really, on Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell to say to councils that are responsible for those services, ultimately, don't wait for Johnson to give you the money, right. which may, in fact, actually never, as unlikely <laughs> to, to ever arise. Yes. Use your reserves, use your borrowing powers now to properly fund adult social care and schools and we will reimburse you. And let's see if Johnson is prepared to take on, even half a dozen councils. And I took him at his words in inverted commas, called his bluff and said, yes, we're going to use our reserves and borrowing powers to fund social care now. To make sure there are no further cuts in schools to fund the deficits that I think two thirds of schools face at the present time. That's the way to answer his populism by actually defying it now and taking those
0: measures to defend workers' living standards and conditions. And of course, we had an earlier podcast which you appeared on, Clive, which went into more detail about how councils do have the power if they Mm. mobilise local resistance in the trade unions, local residents, and so on, council workers, to defy central government cuts. And as you said, to use reserves and borrowing powers to implement. Budgets, which can actually demonstrate in practice today what an anti-austerity programme would look like. So that's entirely possible. But just to return to Johnson's victory in the Tory leadership contest, he stood as the poster boy for leaving the EU, based, as he said, on this little Englander, as it's been described, mainly small business people, membership of the very small Tory party base. How does his approach to the Brexit negotiation differ to May's? First, just one point on the question of small businesses. Well, actually, mm-hmm. over two-thirds
2: of Tory party members are retired. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they're not just like active entrepreneurs. So, okay. so it really is an ideological remnant, mm-hmm. actually, it's congealed in Tory party at the present time. It's not the finished expression of capitalist interests mm-hmm. from the, the point of view of whole. But anyway, <laughs> leave that to one side. On the point about how these approaches and negotiations differ to Mays, well, actually, at a fundamental level, it doesn't. Uh, That's the first point to say. Because at the end of the day, the EU is merely a series of treaties between 28 different capitalist countries, nation-states, and all that Brexit is, formally speaking, is the process of British capitalism resetting its relations with those 27 other European capitalist states... And in doing that, in that process of negotiation, trying to reset relations, both Johnson and Theresa May represent capitalist interests. Sure. They don't represent the interests of the working class. So, at a fundamental level, let's challenge the idea that there's a difference in approach. And actually, even at the level of the type of withdrawal agreement that Johnson can achieve or, or can even aim to achieve, we shouldn't forget the majority of even Johnson's cabinet. Voted remain in
0: 2016. Yeah, that's
2: right. Was it 16 ministers in his cabinet? Yeah, so it was at 55, 60%. Slightly less than May's cabinet, but majority voted remain. Johnson himself voted for Theresa May's Brexit deal Mm. in March. That's right. Five months ago. So there is this idea amongst the Remainers for Boris section of the Tory party. Sorry, the Remainers for Boris section. Yeah. People like Nicky Morgan has been brought back into the cabinet and so on. Sure, yeah. They've voted Remain, Amber Rudd's still stuck in there and so on. The Boris can do, like Charles de Gaulle did in France in 1958 when he came to power, backed up by the Algerian colonialists, promising to preserve France's possession of Algeria and four years later presided over Algerian independence, faced with the mass movement of the Algerian masses and so on. And, by the way, it was in the Day of the Jackal film, was chased down to face assassination attempts, and so on. I'm not sure the European Research Group Tory MPs would quite chase down Johnson in that way. But, sure. by the way, they would remove him. And that's the point. It comes back to the dysfunctional character of the Tory party. There's a lot of talk about Johnson's position being bluff, programmes on game theory and stuff like that. Mm. And there is that hope that possibly, if anyone can get away with selling a Theresa May-type deal, slightly modified, obviously cosmetically modified, it could be somebody like Johnson. But on the other hand, there is that hardcore of the extreme ideological Brexiteers who will resist that.
0: Now, he's presiding over the same Tory party and the same parliament that was utterly incapable of reaching any agreement on leaving the EU. And you've pointed out how fundamentally he doesn't have a different approach. And, of course, how could he? Given that behind all these negotiations, this game playing going on at the top, there are multi-billion pound and Mm multi-billion euro multinational industries Mm -hmm. who aren't just going to accept the outcome of some gentleman's agreement. What is the way forward? What's going to happen there? Well,
2: who knows?
0: (laughs) I must admit it. I do remember the
2: private eye cartoon before. I think it was Christmas before last, where they had Scrooge in bed, and it was the ghost of Christmas Future haunting him. And the Scrooge figure says, "You're so clever. Tell us what happened over Brexit." (laughs) And the ghost says, uh, (laughs) "Over." To try to find a a way through the parliamentary impasse is very difficult for them. Now, as I mentioned, of course, the EU27 is saying they won't renegotiate the withdrawal agreement, but they could amend the political declaration which accompanies it. Right. But that won't be enough. For so, me. what's the political declaration? Okay, so the withdrawal agreement is meant to deal with the, the basics of citizens' rights, the divorce payments, mm-hmm. the nature of the transitional period, and Northern Ireland. Uh, ta- right. Ta- yeah. All tiny details, oh, yeah. but that's all particular <laughs> tiny detail. And and that's all it does. Everything else about future relations was contained in the political declaration, which isn't a legally, internationally legally binding document. Okay. In the same way as the withdrawal treaty is actually a treaty. And therefore, you, know, you could see an amendment in the political declaration. There's a commitment to customs arrangements, which allows for the border in the north of Ireland to remain open, and so on. So you could see some amendment to that, but that's still committing to Britain remaining in a customs union, which actually is the way that Corbyn has posed the position in relation to the backstop. And that won't satisfy the European research group, the ideological Brexiteers. And the reality is the Tory party is split. When Parliament reassembles in September, I think it will be a vote of no confidence tables, and I think the question of a general election is almost certain at some point in the autumn.
0: But the Tories and the Blairites as well, so far, seem to have done everything in their power to avoid a general election. Why is that?
2: Well, historically, in this situation, when you have the Tory party showing its dysfunctionality Mm. from the point of view of the capitalists, they would be looking in this situation to send in the second eleven, and just after the England's <laughs> Ashes uh, collapse, <laughs> that's not a bad approach actually. But they were looking to send the second eleven, and even before Tony Blair changed the Labour Party, so when Labour was still what we call a capitalist workers' party. In other words, a working class base, but capitalist leaders. But they rested on a structure, particularly through the role of the trade unions, which the working class could. It could fight for its interests within that party. Sure. So it was an unstable form of rule for the capitalists. It wasn't fully under their control, but nonetheless, they could lean on it. Because it still ultimately acted in the interests of the capitalists. so it was always potentially unreliable. So historically, they were always able to call on the second eleven. And under Tony Blair, actually, New Labour was the first eleven, yeah. you know, in reality. Because he's so thoroughly sterilised Labour Party from the influence of the working class, both politically, in terms of the abolition of clause 4, the agro-socialist clause, and organisation, with the diminution of the role of the unions, the elimination of the role of the conference design signing policy, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, Corbyn's victory in 2015 created a new danger for the working class, mm-hmm. it reopened the possibility of the working class finding political representation through the Labour Party Mm -hmm. and the possibility then of the renewal of socialist ideas on a mass basis. Now, we can say, this September will be four years after Corbyn's leadership, that the opportunity has not been seized, really, organisationally and politically, to re-transform the Labour Party into a workers' party under the control of the working class fighting for a socialist programme. And... Mm. And in many ways, a Corbyn-led government would have some similarities to the minority Labour government in 1924, which was, at that time, Labour was a new party mm-hmm. in, in that sense. It had 191 Labour MPs, there 159 Liberal MPs and 259 Tories. So Labour was a minority government Quite in 1924, one. exactly. Yeah. Only this time, that Liberal Block yes. is in the parliamentary Labour Party, so you've yeah, got, yeah. you know, so it'd be
0: like a minority. Well, government precisely, government.
2: exactly, exactly, yeah. within the Labour Party, you yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, even the 1924 Labour government still had enormous expectations placed on it. Mm-hmm. We always have to distinguish between the consciousness of the mass of the population and the more critical layer. And if, if Corbyn wins an election, the awesome it would be a government under enormous pressure of expectations from from workers to deliver, and that we have to prepare for that. And, of course, the ruling class don't want to risk that. They have resolved against a general election, but on the other hand, the dysfunctionality of the Tory party, slow-motion implosion of the Tories is gathering pace, and the whole question of the election and what's going to happen the possibility of the Corbyn government is on the agenda.
0: Now, related to that question of Corbyn coming to power through there being no option for the ruling class but provoking a general election. The capitalist press, or at least parts of it, have been saying that Corbyn has now committed Labour to remaining in the European Union. Of course, that would have an impact on his electoral prospects. Is that true? Well, you said the capitalist press, or all, not all of it.
2: That, that's an important point, not uh, all uh, the capitalist press. I mean, yeah. The Financial Times, in their serious moments, don't say that. Sure. The Guardian, which is the House magazine of the Blairites, the Blairite wing of the Labour Party, they're still not satisfied with Corbyn by a long way. And that's a serious point there, that even though Corbyn has failed to decisively overturn the ideological and organisational legacy of Blairism Mm -hmm. and transform Labour into a mass workers' party with a socialist programme, the ruling class still don't trust him as I was saying, in a general sense, because Corbyn picture would give enormous confidence to the working class. And well, you could you see know. big movements as a absolutely, result. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think it's also true in the particular sense, or the more concrete sense, that he's not a reliable defender of capitalist interests on the EU and Brexit. Sure. We shouldn't forget he campaigned in 1975 against the European the Common Market Board, mm-hmm. which remained as the EU, mm-hmm. when he was a backbench MP, so that's in 1983, consistently voted against all the neoliberal EU treaties, for example, against the 1986 Single European Act introduced by Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. working alongside militant MPs. The predecessor of the Socialist Party, our predecessor organisations, our MPs like Pat Wall, Trey Fields, and Dave Nellis, they voted along with Jeremy Corbyn sure. against those measures. Corbyn himself, for example, during the debates over the Maastricht Treaty in 1993 spoke about bankers' Europe endangering the cause of socialism, yeah. if the principle of European economic policy is to be run in that capital can find a home that's most suitable to it. That means any social policies, raising housing, unemployment, and the environment are bound to take second place and that's why I oppose those measures and so on you know so, and you so know. it has played out in the EU as well. Well precisely exactly exactly. Greece is the one word answer to all those who say that the EU is a progressive force sure. Now he made a significant retreat from that position when he was elected as Labour leader in September 2015 when the first concession made to the blairites rights was to commit to support a Remain vote in the what was then the forthcoming EU referendum, in sure. all circumstances. And that's why it has been possible for The Express, The Sun and so on, to portray him as an Islington Remainer. It shows the consequences, by the way, of making political mistakes. Probably it seemed a good idea to him at the time to make that concession to the Blairites mm-hmm. in the early days of his leadership. That's rebounded back on him. But we have to say, despite the pressure since the referendum from the Blairites, the Guardian's campaign on Newsnight it was almost every week has something on Corbyn and the pressure he's under for he must make a clear stance and so on, mm-hmm. he hasn't capitulated so far to the demand to overturn 2016 results. Even when he's spoken of the possibility of a second referendum, mm-hmm. he has ruled out a repeat of it being the same as 2016 straight, Leave would remain. Yeah. So, for example, when he's first broadcast after Johnson's victory on Sky News, he supported the referendum against a no-deal Brexit, mm-hmm. if that was what was being proposed by the Johnson government. But he also said, and this has been consistent in his position, that if Labour won a general election, he would reopen talks with the EU about uh, reaching a Brexit withdrawal agreement, and if you think about it, if he got a Brexit withdrawal agreement, which the bottom lines of not accepting the EU rules on state aids, not accepting the EU rules on compulsory tendering of public contracts and so on, yeah. then why would he campaign against that in the second referendum? So... He's not a reliable representative, because particularly those issues are the things which the capitalists like about the EU.
0: The barriers to nationalisation. Exactly,
2: precisely, exactly. So that's why the campaign has been stepped up by the Blairites and the establishment media against Corbyn's leadership. He's not a reliable uh, defender of capitalist interests. He could be
0: subject to pressure
2: in relation to domestic politics as well.
0: And of course, as you said, the enormous enthusiasm and potential movements, which a Corbyn government could inspire, that would be a changed situation for negotiating with Europe, and that could put them under pressure to actually, with a very different situation in terms of relations within Europe and a different negotiating team. Now, as you said, the Blairites are organising, have been organising openly against Corbyn since he was elected leader of the Labour Party. That organising against him is ever more open, isn't it? So what form do you think the Blairite insurgency might take
2: well, they face a dilemma from a number of angles. First of all, very relatedly, the Labour NEC has started the trigger ballot process, although it's
0: it's still very drawn out. It's... So the trigger ballot process, this is where you can change yes. the candidate at the next general election, basically. So the yeah.
2: LV. Although, as far as I can see, the timetable that started means it's cabinet members first. Sorry, shadow cabinet members first, and then. It goes on to other constituency parties and, and therefore over the summer in the shadow cabinet members seats, local Labour parties and affiliated organisations, trade unions or, or the co-op and so on, are being asked, do they want to move to a full reselection of their MP or are they satisfied with their existing MP? And that is then going to go out to the backbenchers. Mm-hmm. Now, Having said that, that's still a long process, which a snap general election, if it's forced in early September for October, would still mean that Yvette Cooper, who's a backbencher, who Bain who's a backbencher, might not face a trigger ballot, so mm. that's not sufficient. Corbyn should have backed mandatory reselection period had four years to make those organisational changes that haven't
0: happened. A mandatory reselection would be that every time exactly. there's an election Precisely. there is just a exactly. contest. Exactly. Full stop. Yeah. No extra levels exactly. or anything like exactly.
2: that. Yeah. But nonetheless the noose is dangling for some Blairites <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. So that's given them an extra impetus to, to move. Whether they mount a direct leadership challenge to Corbyn like they did in the summer of 2016 with Owen Smith as the unlikely standard-bearer, or make a declaration in Parliament, form a new parliamentary party of a more substantial character than Change UK. That would Um, be difficult. Yeah, well, well, that's that's right, absolutely. But let's be clear, Tom Watson has been organising seminars for backbench MPs on how to survive a trigger ballot process, and apparently 160 of them have Taking, taking it up. Really? Exactly. But that shows... got this group now as well. Oh, yes, that's right. Social exactly. Democratic. Yes, group. exactly. It was organised under that banner. Yeah. Right. But that shows the level... But That shows what we're talking about. The parliamentary group is 245. Mm. So if, if you're looking at 150 plus who are with Watson, which is probably an accurate reflection, mm. that would become the opposition if they were to split. Mm. So that's another variant in the autumn, actually. If there's a vote of no confidence... In Johnson and mm-hmm. then you've got fourteen days to form a new government, that could be a block that could be the force that provides a new Prime Minister. Actually, then to ask for extension on Article fifteen with the EU. With well, the Blairite Social Democratic group. Absolutely, precisely. As a parliamentary group, as a parliamentary party, in effect splitting away. That's a possibility, but that's That's a very risky gamble. Mm. Actually, for Watson to challenge Corbyn for leader is a risky gamble. If he loses, (laughs) again, like Smith did. Mm. But then to split away, split the parliamentary party and form a new parliamentary group and leave Corbyn with, I know, 50 to 80 MPs. Mm -hmm. The third party in Parliament is the Labour Party. That's handing the Labour Party over to Corbyn and the left. But it would be quite a small party in Parliament. In Parliament, but on the other hand, some councillors would go with the Social Democratic group, Mm -hmm. Watson group, but then also that leaves open those who are left, the trade unions, Mm -hmm. where would they go? Mm -hmm. Where would the bulk of the membership go? Mm -hmm. The Socialist Party would once again apply for affiliation, because actually, by the way, the Jewish Labour movement would disaffiliate, I suspect. The Labour yeah, party sure. may disaffiliate, so there'd be vacancies for new affiliated yeah. organisations. <laughs> There'll be left trade unions that aren't affiliated, like the PCS, the RMT. Sure. So I'd say, well look, let's we want to affiliate, but we want the new Labour Party reconstitute or the small parliamentary Labour Party which you lead to have more democratic structures. Why should the parliamentary party maintain the weight when it's half its members have defected? So that yeah, that really is a gamble. It's a card you can't play more than once. So it could actually
0: end up transforming a Labour Party around Jeremy Corbyn into a much larger, more effective, more ideologically clear organisation, which could smash them. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Actually, there's only ever been one national government that was in the 1930s. that grand coalition government. Yeah, that's right, exactly. But normally a national government is considered or prepared or discussed after a period where a section of the working class has become demoralised through the experience of Labour in power. Right. Implementing capitalist policies. And that isn't the case now. And that's why it's a particular gamble, because it would leave the Labour Party in the hands of the left, still with the brand of Labour, facing a chaotic situation. Even, by the way, the whole idea of Britain remaining in the EU, first thing that comes up is, will Britain get the rebate that it's had since the 1980s in the new EU budget Mm. for example in tiny details like that there'd be hard negotiations there and there'd be outrage amongst big sections of the working class that the referendum result has been overturned so it will be a period of flux it's a card that has to be very carefully used and therefore I think the main point to draw from that from us of the Labour movement is that we can have no compromise with the Blairites with the Watsonites the uh, working class must organise mm. still to make sure that the possibilities that were there in the Corbyn leadership for Labour to be retransformed into a mass workers' party with a socialist programme are, are seized in the next period.
0: Can we expect any of these strategies from the various different representatives of capitalism, the Tories, the Blairites and so on? to result in a return to the business-as-usual politics of before the 2007 to eight financial crash. (laughs) To which I think the answer (laughs) is (laughs) clear, no. We're
2: just talking about the the disintegration of the oldest capitalist party in the world, Mm. the possibilities of realignments in terms of the Labour Party and the new social democratic formation, the flux and turmoil in the Labour Party that exists, And it does come back to the point I said earlier, that if you like that period of flux and instability, implosion of the Tory party and so on, all of these are symptoms of a more profound crisis of capitalism, Mm -hmm. which hasn't been able to overcome the continuing consequences of 2007-2008, both economically and politically. And actually, economically, I think you have to say that the measures that were taken at that time in 2008 to the possibility of a 1930s-style Depression, mm-hmm. which was 10 years the lowest ever interest rates, constant tran- Yeah, exactly. The transfer of private debts onto the public balance sheet. Sure. You say QE, which in Britain has pumped in over 400 billion into the UK economy, four and a half trillion in the US, but not into. Well, we haven't seen any of that. Well, precisely, it's not into productive investments, yeah. but into underpinning financial assets. Mm. So it's shifted wealth to asset holders, i.e., to capital. While wages have stagnated, mm-hmm. and therefore that's added to a crisis of demand as well. At the same time, as creating new asset bubbles or corporate debts and so on, another asset bubble. And the unwinding of those distortion of values that happens in order to avert the possibility of a 1930s-style crash, it distorted values between companies, mm-hmm. distorted values between countries, and, of course, distorted values between classes. But all that's done is creating the basis for a new global economic crisis, possibly before the end of the year, but certainly in the next period. But would that be already
0: taking a battering on the basis of the last economic crisis. Would this be a big setback for the working class?
2: It would be. It's not something that we... I don't give the impression that it's like something to anticipate sure. positively, but nonetheless, that is the objective backlog against which the crisis of British capitalism, the constitutional crisis, the Brexit crisis and the political crisis is playing out and really that will have its impact on consciousness. It will have impacts on people looking for a way out and that gives possibilities for socialist ideas to take great leaps forward in the next period and that does give hope, that does give a certain confidence about the possibilities
0: that open up in the next period for the triumph of socialist ideas. Meanwhile, of course, the class enemy is falling to pieces. Absolutely. And that's quite favourable ground to be fighting on. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Clive. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party in England and Wales is fighting for, we need you. Join our campaign to build a truly effective fighting force in the trade unions and labour movement to bring down the Tories and win socialist policies. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting
1: socialistworld.net. Thanks, James. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. We also want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk and help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. You can read more about what we think at socialistparty.org.uk and as always, if you agree, join the socialists. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party. This week we heard from Clive Heemskirk speaking to James Ivans and me, Scott Jones. Till next time, solidarity.